RJ Lozada here. If you like what you're hearing, please donate to us. Visit radioproject.org, and there you can find a donate button. Also, rate us on iTunes. It totally helps other listeners find us. Thanks so much. And now, here's the show. This week on Making Contact. Have you ever noticed that cities have a constant hum? Each neighborhood has a unique flavor because of the people who live there. It's like their own soundtrack. If you go inside, you get a respite most of the time. But if you live outdoors, the sound of the city is constant. It is you. It's us. In this episode of Making Contact, we go to three cities, from Southern to Northern California and around the globe to Cape Town, South Africa all struggling with high rents and low housing vacancies that are forcing some people out of their communities and leaving others with nowhere else to go but the streets. We begin in my hometown, Los Angeles, California, where just about 58,000 people are experiencing homelessness throughout the county. My name is Tom Waldman, and I'm the Director of Communications for the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. Tom's organization is also referred to as LASA, It's a hybrid city and county agency that provides homeless services. One of their big annual projects is a homeless count, kind of a mini-census that takes place every January. And this year, the changes were staggering. Altogether, they found 23% more people experiencing homelessness since the previous year. We were surprised by the magnitude of the increase. We literally are in a situation right now in Los Angeles County where hundreds of thousands of people are living paycheck to paycheck, and it's because of rents more than anything else. I recently learned that the first step to getting people back into housing can sometimes be the hardest. So there are special outreach teams called emergency response teams, or ERTs, who go out looking for people that want help. They're made up of social workers, nurses, counselors, and outreach workers. Some have experienced homelessness themselves. I went out with teams from two completely different locations. One, St. Joseph Center, which is just a few blocks from Venice Beach. The other is in the high desert community of Antelope Valley, where residents saw a 50% jump in homelessness this past year. So, everybody ready? My name is Flora Harris. I'm the program director for C3 program in Venice, California. We have our peer specialist today, we have our LASA ERT, and then we have our mental health specialist going out with us. So do you all go out every day? Every single day. So when we're out asking questions, we're trying to find out if the clients are housing ready. If they have their California ID, social security card, we refer them so that they can get case management, so that they can get um, counseling if they need it, and someone to help them you know, mitigate some of the other problems that they run into managing their life functioning. My name is Shaheeb Joseph. I am an outreach worker for Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority. Shaheeb and his emergency response team, or ERT, work in the high desert on the outskirts of L.A. County. For the most part, start the day about anywhere from 6 to 7 o'clock, go load up the truck with supplies, and just go out to these encampments. Well, this morning we've got cold water. I have a few, uh, they're called protein coffee shakes. Homeless have been loving those lately. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a first aid kit in here, uh, hygiene supplies, and a few clothes, blanket or two. 
they've been asking more for cold water and instead of coffee, so. We actually have the largest landmass area, but we do have less homeless than, than any other area. The physical terrain is dusty in the desert here, you know, so that we do have mountain areas going towards Acton, so it's a lot of places for homeless to hide. It's kind of a road right here. So. Wasn't it somewhere like right here on the side? Right here in this bush, this big bush. I don't see them. Tom Waldman. The ERT groups during the year are engaging with people experiencing homelessness every day, and that's part of the job of ERT groups. Uh, they building relationships of trust, helping people getting into shelter, and one would hope permanent housing. And so the way they work is one team member approaches the client or potential client, and the other one stands back to sort of be a lookout, to watch and make sure that nothing um, either illegal or dangerous is gonna happen. This part of Third Street is a long industrial block. Flora points to body-sized shelters covered with tarps and blankets that line the walls and fences along the street. There may be someone underneath these things. We don't go there, we don't try and wake them up. We don't um, infringe on their personal space and their privacy. So we'll very respectfully ask if we can assist them, if they're, what their needs are, if they're looking for housing, if they're looking for um, medical care, if they need case management. And you know, so it's a very respectful interaction. And we only proceed if they are in agreement to allowing us to take down their information. Flora and team member Pierre are relieved that a man they've been approaching for weeks has agreed to go to detox and complete their intake survey. There are those people on the streets who, for whatever reason, don't want to go into shelter. They may be fearful of what they'll experience. Uh, they are maybe mistrusting authority, and they just don't want to have any authority figures who might be running their lives uh, or how they, they would perceive it that way. Sometimes they just really, you know, things they've been through in their life, they don't trust anybody. So that's part of the reason why they're secluded, don't want to be bothered, and try to stay stick to themselves. But those same people that refuse service, you know, maybe 10 times me seeing them, the 11th time something happened where they're, they've seen me help some other individual, and it's, hey, can you uh, help me like you helped that individual? I want to get off the streets. So a lot of times it takes that long to build, you know, get their trust. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. That was a particular client. She's been out here quite a while. I believe she's let one voucher for housing go through. I mean, drug addiction's a kind of a big reason about it, but uh, she says she's also in pain though, because she does have some uh, some problems going on with her stomach. But I just explained to her though, we need to get her to the social security building so she gets her social security card. It's part of her getting a voucher. I just explained to her like, I'll come back later on today and pick her up and take her there. I'm tired of seeing her out here. She, she should have been housed. Sometimes it takes a, you know, we have to do a little bit more as far as literally hand walking them to housing. Some will beat down the door and, and get most of it on their own, but her mother and father are actually out here in the other part of the desert too. Yeah, so it's kind of it's sad. There's a, a family history of homelessness. 
these clients down here on third street they are substance users they um, have lost their homes because of their circumstances mainly sometimes due to alcohol use drug use or because they couldn't keep their jobs so they pretty much lost their homes because of that and then they just come down here and they develop a community we have one individual that um, who had been homeless for almost 15 years we got her in at our interim housing she, as of last Sunday night she stayed two nights there because she just prefers to be here with her community she's been outdoors for so long that living indoors has been such a tough adjustment for her so she continues to sleep on the street um, we've had individuals who go into the units and they bring their tents and they set their tent up instead of sleeping in the bed. So, you know, trying to get them housing ready is more than just finding a house for them to live in. It's helping them to adjust to living indoors again, bathing, uh, generalized hygiene, daily hygiene, getting up and eating a hot breakfast, you know, going to bed at a normal time. It's, it's just, it's more than getting them housed. Shahib Joseph. Things happen in people's lives that they might take a certain way and end up in homelessness, you know, but nobody's better than the next person. Sometimes you don't need organizations to help a homeless off the street. If you have a line on a job, if you have a room to rent at your home, or if you have property where you can actually help someone out, do it. If you can, help, help. Tom Waldman. One of the unusual things about uh, what we're seeing in, in Los Angeles County right now is I think there was, there's a kind of traditional sense in American social history that if you see an increase in homelessness, it's a direct result of an economic depression or recession. I mean, I think all of us have, to some extent, that image of hobos from the 1930s during the Depression. Um, but here in Los Angeles right now, the economy is doing fairly well. I mean, unemployment's around 5%, which is pretty low. Nevertheless, we have 58,000 homeless people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles County. The ultimate goal is to get them off the street. You know, Peter Lynn, people might think he's crazy sometimes, but he literally says in our meetings, you know, our goal is to end homelessness. Everybody has their opinion about that's impossible or how to get that done, but if we're not working in this field to do that, then what are we doing it for? I don't, you know, there's plenty of ways to make money and, and jobs out there, but that's my goal is to how can I get this person off the street? L.A. voters last year passed measures that they hope will make a real impact on homelessness. One is a countywide sales tax increase that funds the outreach teams we just heard from. That tax generates $355 million a year. Among other services, it also helps to pay for emergency rental assistance to prevent people from falling into homelessness in the first place. We now turn 400 miles north to Oakland, California. Making contacts, Anita Johnson looked at the situation for people experiencing homelessness there with the help of a local homeless advocate. This is a house I'm building. This was a platform after my trailer burned down on New Year's Eve. I lost everything. So I had these um, pallets where I put my tent on. And the tent kept ripping and kept getting wet during the rain season. So I looked online and seen homemade tents. And I seen this structure online. So where they just basically took the um, bottom of the tent and used it as the roof and put up three boards. 
and um, use the front of the tent as the front door. I can show you right here. That's Messiah Ali. He's 43 years old and has lived in Oakland for most of his life. He's invited me inside his home, a home with a ceiling made from old camping tents, three walls and a floor made of wooden pallets and other discarded materials he's gathered while living on the street. Describe where we're at right now. Right now we're on Wood Street and 24th. How long have you been out here? About two years. How did you wind up becoming homeless? What's, what's the story? Well, I got evicted out of my house because my landlord went up on a rent. And then uh, when I moved back here with my mother, my aunt and them decided that they wanted to remodel, and it took them a year. They just not finished. And um, I actually came over here to have Leon fix my door on my camper because I had it in my mother's driveway. And the officer towed my van, and I ended up being stuck here ever since. What Messiah describes as being stuck has become the reality for many forced onto the street. Most formerly housed individuals say they're being pushed out of the city due to an influx of high-paid tech workers driving up housing prices. This reoccurring narrative of eviction due to skyrocketing rents has become the new face of displacement. And here in Oakland, the impacts of gentrification can be seen all over the city. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, directly behind Target. There used to be one of the biggest encampments of the city of Oakland, and it started from right where that semi is and it went on both sides of the street and we're going to keep driving and driving and driving and it ended here on this side but this side kept on going kept on going see where they're parking all these cars up until i mean it just kept on going so we're talking about maybe like uh eight blocks yeah this was a homeless encampment and then it stopped right where that fence was right wow. here so um the city of oakland and operation dignity um, evicted this entire encampment and um, a lot of these spots um, they're still like you know indus industrial businesses but they're also live workplaces that a lot of the, the gentrifier folks have have flipped into like mixed work spaces um, some of these folks who've moved in here they're part of that whole NIMBY community so most of these folks right here um, used to live in that encampment that we saw. And That's an Nita B, right, so a housing advocate and founder of Feed the People, uh, a volunteer-run advocacy group that provides life-sustaining services to the homeless community in Oakland. On this day, she took me on a ride-along through West Oakland, pointing out various encampments and describing how the city's approach to homelessness has re-traumatized the 100-plus homeless people living in nearby encampments by dismantling their makeshift homes to make way for a dog hotel. This encampment area that there were, this used to be an encampment that we just drove by. Um, yes, the people were removed there because there is currently a dog hotel being built. And the owners of the dog hotel didn't want their customers to feel unsafe. That's that's a common thing we hear from new business owners that set up in our neighborhoods, whether it be near homeless encampments or near black and brown people, near low-income people, that they don't want their clients to feel unsafe. But they're here for the community. So the, the, the owners of this new business didn't want their clients to feel unsafe and also um, wanted to get rid of the humans because right where the humans were living, they want to put a parking lot for their clients. So um, again, it's just like profit over people. The housing crisis in Oakland is a racial equity issue that's complex and widespread. According to the Alameda County 2017 homeless person point in time count, it's estimated that over 5,500 people experience homelessness and 3,800 are unsheltered, living in tents, parks, vehicles, vacant buildings, and underpasses, an increase of nearly 40% over the last count two years ago. 
the average person was an African-American man, 45 to 54 years old, able-bodied, unemployed, and in many cases struggling with mental health or substance abuse issues. Housing advocates like Nita B. believes the city isn't being realistic in addressing the needs of Oakland's growing homeless population due to rising rents and a growing wealth gap. Yeah, the city never offers people the alternative. What they want to say is, oh, we offered them shelter. We told them to go to a shelter. We told them to go to Henry J. Robinson. We told them to go to Operation D&D. And the reality is, first of all, there's like at least 6,000 people. The, the, the city numbers and the county numbers say there's 2,000-something people who live on the streets of Oakland. But those are the people that they can see. When they do those census counts, they're not looking at the folks who live in the tunnels. They're not looking at the, There's an entire encampment that's just tree houses because they don't want people to find them because they get harassed. So in East Oakland, there's an entire encampment of people living in trees. They weren't counted. The numbers that you hear about, like, oh, 2,000 people in the, in the county of Alameda, those are just the folks that the, the people who do the counting can actually physically see. And so there's only 300 shelter beds in the city of Oakland, and there's at least 6,000 unhoused people. So first of all, there isn't enough room. Number two, um, people don't like going to the shelters because of the, the restrictions that are put on them. And um, like a lot of folks work at night or they have jobs during the day. You have to be in the shelter by five to get housing. And if you're working night or if you're working till five, that doesn't work for you. Uh, either it's a choice between quitting your job, which who wants to do that, um, or getting a bed for the night. Um, people have pets. They don't want to go. You're not allowed in the shelter if you have pets. Folks who are families end up getting separated because men go to one shelter and women go to another shelter and families don't want to be separated. As Oakland officials discuss increased spending on programs and services for homeless people, including sanitation and trash services at particular encampments, many advocates say it isn't enough and are petitioning for the city to take a more progressive, humane stance that would provide low-income affordable housing, stronger eviction regulations that would prevent evictions without cause, and a minimum on rent increases annually. Housing advocates believe this is the first step in a good-faith practice that would be beneficial to all Oakland residents, not just newcomers with deep pockets. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson. Cape Town is South Africa's second biggest city. Like cities in the U.S., when boutique businesses and higher housing costs start to show up in historically black and brown neighborhoods, it can point to changes for longtime residents. During apartheid, the government forcibly removed tens of thousands of people of color from the city. Today, gentrification is having a comparable effect because rising prices are driving evictions from working-class neighborhoods. Tony Andrews and Camon de Grief follow the story through a sporting subculture with the notion of home at its center. These are the birds that I've bred this year. That's Riyad Najjar, an avid pigeon racer in Cape Town, South Africa. He's showing me and my co-producer, Kimon de Grief, around a large wooden enclosure known amongst racers as a loft. Riyad seems to have a strong connection with the birds. Come, come, come. Just jumped under your shoulder. Yes, no, no. Riyad comes in here every day from 4.30 a.m. to feed his pigeons and generally make sure that they're ready for the upcoming racing season. Waking up that early doesn't bother him, though. He says the birds calm him. You hear that sound? You hear that sound? And, and it, it, it's, you come in here, you leave everything there. The birds are also a reminder of a painful time in his past, a time when neither his home nor that of his pigeons was secure. In a way, his pigeons have become a strange proxy for spatial dislocation in Cape Town. Back inside his house, Ria tells us that he's been keeping pigeons since he was four years old. I had my first pigeons in my mother's kitchen uh, under the our eating table. 
Rhea doesn't just love the pigeons for their peaceful demeanor. Part of what fascinates him is the incredible ability of specially bred varieties to find their way back to a specific location across vast distances. In a typical race, pigeons are transported in specially modified trucks to far-off locations and then released. Electronic devices then measure how fast the birds travel back to their loft. No animal, uh, while besides probably um, um, dolphins and whales, um, uh, has the ability to, to find its direction home for thousands of kilometers, having been at a particular place. For Riyadh, that place was a part of Cape Town called District 6. Right on the border with the downtown area, District 6 was a unique, bustling neighborhood with a racially diverse population. It was such a, a rich um, childhood. We would play um, uh, sport in the road. And the best sportsmen came from District 6. I mean, I, I played rugby. I went on to play for um, the South African team. And at that time, we could, rugby was separate. By separate, he means racially separate. During apartheid, people from the various races in the country weren't allowed to mix. The apartheid government declared the area to be for white residents. People of color, who made up the vast majority, were forcibly removed, including Riyadh. Tell me about the last day you spent in your previous Oh, home. that was um, just my father's birthday, and he said he wanted to have his last birthday still. In the, in the house in District 6. And um, when, when it, it, was, it was a happy occasion for him, yeah, celebrating his birthday, but also a sad time uh, for us. I mean, we, we were very, very um, cut up. You would already see the, the neighbor's house gone and you were still standing, so you have to, have to move because uh, the, the guys on the job, they have to, to pull down your house. Well, I watched it happen to to some of my uh, other other house, but I didn't see. I mean, it would have been too painful to to, to watch that. It's been 45 years since Riyadh was forced to leave his home, and a lot has changed in South Africa in the meantime. In 1994, apartheid was abolished, and the country became a democracy. So, in theory, everyone has been free to live wherever they want for 23 years. In practice. Formerly white areas remain too expensive for people of color who are suffering the generational effects of apartheid inequality. Also, a recent property boom in the inner city caused rents to skyrocket, driving people of color out of small working class enclaves that survived apartheid urban planning. We go to visit Woodstock, one of the gentrifying communities. Delia Adrian, who incidentally was born in District 6, just up the road, is being evicted from an apartment there that she shares with her family. This is my last grandchild. Hello, baby. Say hello to the uncle there. The building she lives in is in an advanced state of decay. The landlord clearly hasn't put much money in the upkeep for years. When a gust of wind blew the roof off one year, Delia says she had to replace the ceiling herself. Her 17 years in the apartment have been marked by similar disputes. We're not paying rent now because the water has been disconnected. I'm stealing water, sir. Water isn't a luxury. It's a necessity. But the landlord owes the city so much money. (laughs) 
She and the other tenants are going to court this morning to get an update on the eviction proceedings. That's all used to be houses. We disinfected it. As we drive down the road, her friend Shahid Meisenheimer points out the changes in the neighborhood, which is now dotted with coffee shops, microbreweries, and rustic furniture stores. I used to stay here. It was houses right around here. So the building has been demolished now? Demolished, totally demolished. You can see what it looks like here. Once we get to court, it takes several hours before anything happens. Eventually, they are told the case has been postponed for two weeks, and the limbo continues. The outcome that Delia and her neighbors are most terrified of is being sent to what the city terms a temporary relocation area. The most notorious of these is called Blickiesdorp, literally meaning tin can town. I've been to Blickiesdorp. It's gangster infested now. The people should be, you mean I must take my well-bred grandchildren to Blickiesdorp to become gangsters? Gangster infested. That's what a lot of people say when you mention the area's name. For them, the purgatory of Blickiesdorp feels more like hell. My partner Kimon and I head out to the settlement. The first problem, however, is that it's supposed to be a temporary site, so it's not listed on any maps, and we have to ask for directions. We're looking for Blickiesdorp. A couple yeah. standing on the side of the road offers to get into the car and show us the way. Thanks very much. Eh? One of them asks us in Afrikaans whether we've heard how rough the place is. He tells us to watch out for criminals and offers to keep an eye on us until we find the person we're planning to meet. All right. Once inside Blickiesdorp, it becomes clear how it got its reputation. It's made up of regimented rows of shacks that extend over barren, sun-baked sand. One of the residents, Jane Roberts, comes out to meet us. This is a dumping place. For wherever you're getting evictions, they bring the people to this temporary location. Jane shows us around the site, which has been divided up into sections. Each section is home to people from separate eviction rounds across the city, almost like a living museum of displacement. She can point out those who were brought here to make space for the 2010 Soccer World Cup, for example or those who've been moved out of Woodstock. Near the end of our tour, a bunch of teenage boys from the settlement walks past us, and Jane immediately seems uncomfortable. That is a gang. Everybody knows they're in a gang, eh? Mm. Everybody knows them. Gangs are endemic in many poorer parts of Cape Town. The isolation of Blickiesdorp, where strangers were thrust together from across the city, has given rise to new groups as residents vie for a sense of place. Next, Jane takes us to see her house, a 10 by 10 foot structure built from thin metal sheets, where she's been living for eight years. This is my house. In the winter time, in the summer it's hot, you can feel. In the summer it's very hot. In the winter time, it's very, very cold. The city has stopped sending people to Blickiesdorp, though there are other relocation sites performing the same function, all with a similar lack of services. For example, though the settlement receives electricity, the toilets, which are basically just outhouses, have to be shared by around five or six households. The toilet Jane showed us had a leak that spilled out into an area where children played. It's not nice to stay here. People just want to come out of this place. Listening to Jane, it's hard to ignore the similarities with Riyadh Najjar's story, the pigeon race you heard in the beginning. Both experienced dislocation, but instead of rising rents, it was the apartheid state that drove Riyadh from his home. When he watched the bulldozers chew through District 6 so many years ago, Riyadh's mind turned immediately towards his beloved birds. The pigeons was the first, was first on my mind. Mm-hmm.
Even after they moved to the new house, the pigeons still wanted to go back to the old house, their biological home. I would take my bicycle, get to town, and they would all be sitting on the plot. You know, just exactly at the same spot. There are a few methods that racers use to condition pigeons to accept a new location as their home, and Riyadh tried all of them. But despite his best efforts, some birds just couldn't get used to the new place. I don't know if they had the same feeling that we had, you know, the pigeons. It's, it's funny that um, uh, thinking about it now, they probably also felt a sense of, of, of loss. Riyadh believes the pigeons' iron will to get home contains lessons for the whole country. We should all in this country have a will to make it a better place for everyone. And if we have the same determination and fortitude to achieve that, um, uh, you know, this would be the uh, uh, country of Mulkanani. What exactly that looks like is open to interpretation. Riyadh recognizes that solving the challenges of gentrification won't be easy. But then again, toppling apartheid wasn't either. It will take a monumental effort to make this country feel like home for all South Africans. And in Cape Town, if we don't fight the headwinds of market trends that reinforce old apartheid patterns, it's unlikely we'll ever get there. For Making Contact, we are Tony Andrews and Kimon de Grief in Cape Town, South Africa. And that's it for this week's show. I'm your host, Monica Lopez. For more information, go to radioproject.org. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.